Good morning. Uh, as it was mentioned earlier, my name is Scott Langemeyer. I was born here in Chadron, Nebraska, grew up in Alliance, and for the past 12 years, I've lived overseas. I spent some time in Germany, uh, in Chile, and South America, and now where we are as a family in Switzerland. And I've been back for about two weeks now sharing about what God's been doing in our lives and through our lives, through our ministry. I arrived would have been a few Fridays ago. It was pretty funny because I was coming in from Europe. I landed in Denver. And you guys know, there's a little plane that comes to western Nebraska from Denver. And so I got in the plane and there's just a handful of people in there. And I took a picture and I put it online. And all the people I'm in contact with in Europe, they write me back and they, may, they say, Man, are you loaded? Do you have a private jet or how do you get around? I thought, yeah, well, let me tell you something about western Nebraska. There's... <laughs> Not a whole lot of ways to get from point A to point B. Um, But I am serving in Switzerland. We have three little girls. Uh, We've been there for seven years, like I mentioned. Our oldest girl is Emily. She was actually born in Chile. She is eight years old. She's in the third grade right now. And she's very happy uh, because in school they speak German. But now she learns as a foreign language English. And because we speak English at home, she's doing very well. And that boosts her confidence a lot. Uh, Our next daughter is Lucy. She's six years old. And she is just a hoot, really. It's so much fun to be with her. Uh, She is probably one of our kids who's the most confused with the languages. And so I play this game with her called the Deutschspiel, the German game because she just talks a mix of everything that comes to her mind. And so I, I think, you know, I need to help her learn English well so that when she talks to her family, they can understand her. And so what we do is I ask her things, what she did throughout the day, and she has to respond to me only in English. And it works at the beginning because she really is concentrated. And then after a few minutes of talking, like any kid, she just goes on autopilot and she starts saying all the words and then I tickle her and she loves it. Uh, Our littlest one, Sophie, oh, she is a ball of fire. Uh, She's four years old, and she likes to go to the swimming pool. And this year, she she learned something new. She loves to go down the slide. And she realized that if she goes down the slide and she pulls her swimming suit all the way up into her crack, there's no friction, so she can just go down that slide as fast as you can imagine. (laughs) And that gives you a little bit of a, a... a glimpse into what I deal with as a father with, with my daughters. Uh, we've been serving for the past seven years on a campus in Switzerland where we train young people and we've loved what we've done. So many wonderful things have happened to see lives transformed, people be trained to go out into the world, to meet people with the gospel and for people to find their hope in Jesus Christ. And we've loved what we've done for the past seven years there on campus. We've been so thankful for so many groups who've come from Ridgeview, from the college who have helped us individual people, groups of people. It's been a tremendous blessing. But after seven years of living on this campus, uh, we've come to the conclusion as a family that it's time to make a transition for us. It's a lot of wonderful work to be 24-7 walking out your front door and being just confronted with, with all the needs of ministry. And we've come to the conclusion it's time for us as a family to make a small transition And so we're in the process of that now, but we are convinced now more than ever uh, that God wants to work in our lives and through our lives on the intercultural missions field. And so we're staying on the field. We're very passionate about what God wants to do. We have so many awesome stories of lives being transformed with the gospel. Um, 
people who we've been walking with for the past five, six, seven years who are slowly starting to understand what a beautiful thing it is to be in relationship with Christ. And so we're passionate about that. We want to continue to help people discover their gifts and talents so they can find their place of service, uh, but to also meet people with the gospel who would maybe never find their way into a church, but through friendships, through authentic relationships that they can uh, discover what, what the meaning of the cross is. And so we're thankful for you as a church, for all of your prayers, for your faithful support. We can't stress that enough. Uh, we're convinced that it's not just us on the field, but we're with you as a church. And I have the privilege of seeing this fruit with my eyes every day, but I always admire the faith of people like you who so faithfully give, who so faithfully donate and pray. And, and I see how this fruit is being blossomed into something beautiful and to see your faith too invest so that fruit can can come into being that you're probably never going to enjoy that you're probably never going to see but it's happening and so i commend you on your faith i commend you on your faithful support and i just want to ask from the depths of my heart to continue with us as a family as god works in and through us Wonderful. Before we dive into God's word, I'd like to say a quick prayer, and then together we're going to look at Titus 1, 9 through 16. Jesus, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word, and I know that we've come all with different expectations. We've experienced different things through the week. Some of us are happy. Others are frustrated, some are sad, and some are just on autopilot. And I pray, God, that now you speak to us through your word, that we wouldn't just be hearers, that it wouldn't just be an intellectual experience, but that you would speak to the depths of our hearts, that we would have an encounter with you. I pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So a couple years ago, I was in the middle of building something out of wood, uh, and I was working with a group of people. And if you've ever worked with tools in a group of people, you know that that's a dangerous thing, because the tools just seem to disappear. It's like a pencil when you go to school, you know? They're like the most important, valuable things, because they just disappear. So everybody protects their tools. They protect their things. And I was working with a guy, and he got a phone call, and he left his tape measure sitting there. So I did what anybody would do. I picked it up and I used it. And I got the right uh, dimensions for the wood. And then I went to the saw and I was going to cut it. There was another tape measure there. So I marked it out and I put my line. I cut it on the table saw. And then I went back to screw on the board. And I noticed, what the heck? It doesn't fit. So I grabbed my tape, the tape measure from my, my friend again. And that moment, he walks in the room and he says, hey, be careful. I thought he was going to give me a hard time for using his, his tape measure. And he says, be careful. My tape measure is actually a half of an inch short. And I looked at him and said, what do you have a tape measure for a half an inch that's short? I mean, who does that kind of thing? This is not a tape measure. It doesn't deserve to be on a construction site. I said, well, how did that happen? He said, well, one time I was cutting and I just cut off a little piece and I didn't want to buy a new one so I just put that little metal thing on the end and I keep using it and when I tell somebody else I cut, I just add a half an, half an inch to it and it works. I looked at him and said, you're crazy. You know, your tape measure's not true. 
your tape measure isn't trustworthy. It's deceitful. It causes problems. And he laughed at me and he said, you know, don't take my tape measure. You're probably wondering why I'm telling you this story right now. And it's because in the text that we're going to read today, Paul is writing to Titus and he's telling them to be aware of people who aren't trustworthy. He's writing to people and telling him to be aware of people who aren't telling the truth, who are deceitful. For people who, if they're not corrected, it can have massive negative implications, just like a negative, a bad tape measure on a construction site. So Paul lays out instructions for Titus on how to deal with these complex situations. And at the heart of Paul's message is a simple statement. And so if you forget everything else I say to you this morning, remember this. The gospel is true, and it's the only message that can provide lasting fulfillment. I'll say it again. The gospel is true, and it is the only message that can provide lasting fulfillment. So this morning, I want to look at you Look with you at three main points. And the first point is to see how the gospel is true, how it's truth. The second is how the gospel is a message, how it's to be proclaimed, how it's to be shared. And the third is how the gospel leads to life, how it leads to lasting fulfillment. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Titus 1, 9 through 16, or you can turn on your phones I know that for those of you who were here last week, you started or ended in verse 9 and 10, and we had a miscommunication as I got the text for today, so I connected with these two verses. I heard Bert's message, but I think we complement each other well on this, so if you've heard these few verses already, uh, you can just enjoy and take in for what God wants to say to your hearts today. But I'd like to read it with you. I invite you to engage your minds and not think about what you're going to have for lunch, not think about the work that you have to do on Monday, but that we can really dive into the text together and see what the Lord wants to share to our hearts today. So the text says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There are many who are insubordinate, empty doctors and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans of prophets of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So point number one, the gospel is true. So before this text... Uh, the passage starts out with a continuations of qualifications for church leadership. And Paul says the person must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And so other word, in other words, what Paul is saying here is that the authority of this person isn't to be found in their ability, not in their powerful resume, not in their intellectual ability, not even in their life experience. And I would say, to, I would go so far to say not primarily in their character, as important as that is as well. 
but he says their authority is not self-defined, but rather it's derived from holding firm to the word of God, to the Bible, which is described as trustworthy. It's true. You know, it's not like a tape measure that's just missing a half an inch. The word is true. It's right. It fits. And this is important because truth matters. Having the right foundation matters. So let me explain. I mean, to make a claim that the gospel is true, that the Bible is trustworthy, it's a profound statement. And so we live in a world today that says you define what's true. You define what's right for you. No Burger King, have it your way, or their new slogan, you rule, you decide, you're the one. But the Bible is unique because it says there's a lot of things that you can build your life on. There's a lot of foundations that you can build your life on. There's a lot of things that you can try to use to solve the problems of your life. And a lot of them will work temporarily. A lot of the foundations that you can build your life on, areas from which you can draw your authority to, from, your meaning from, they'll work for a while until they don't. You might be thinking to yourself, well, how, how can this be? But I mean, think about it. You can have a cruddy childhood. And you go to the counselor, and the counselor can say, you just need to go to college. You need to get a good education. You need to have good friends. And you need to get a good job, and then you can make good money, and then you can maybe even do what everybody hopes when they go to college, meet their spouse, and then you'll be okay. And you can take those things, you can take that truth, and then build your life on it. You can insert it in yourself as a foundation, as a reason, as a motivation to go forward, and that'll work for a while until it doesn't. Until you realize, no matter how good of grades you get, it doesn't fulfill you. Until you realize even the best relationships don't satisfy you the way that you desire to be satisfied. You can have a wonderful job and you can say, I don't feel fulfilled. And you can get the same advice. What you need is more compensation, more money, more, more for what you do. And you can say, that's it. And you can take that. And you can put it in your heart as a motivation, as a foundation, as something you say is true, and you hold on to that, and it works until it doesn't. You see, we can build our lives on different foundations. We can say that different things are true, that they work, so to say, but eventually we all come to the same conclusion that it doesn't fulfill the way that we desire. There's lots of solutions to the problems that we have. There's lots of foundations we can build our life on. But there's only one that's true. There's only one that's lasting. And so when the Bible says the gospel is true, when the Bible says hold firm to the trustworthy word of God, it's saying it's true and it works. You see, there's a difference because the world tells us today something works and that's why it's true. But the Bible is unique. The gospel is unique. It's true. And that's why it works. It's not like a faulty tape measure that just doesn't give the correct length. It's true. And it works. We'll look at this in more detail in point number three. But I want to set this foundation that Paul is laying. And my question for you today is, 
Do you believe it? You know, what's the foundation of your life? What's the foundation from which you're building your life, from which you're trying to derive your authority, your meaning, your purpose? Not just what you say it is, not what you want it to be, but what's the foundation you're standing on? Is it your intellect? Is it your bank account? Is it your network, your family, your reputation? The Bible will say all those things will work until they don't. The passage continues, and and this leads me to my second point. The gospel is to be taught. It's to be proclaimed. So a reminder, Titus is, is in a complicated situation. He's surrounded by people who are deceitful. He's surrounded by people who aren't teaching truth. And if this goes unchecked, it can cause a lot of damage. These people, the text says, are teaching for impure motives. They're financially crooked. And so Paul does something in typical Paul fashion. He, he, he kind of does a sarcastic statement. And this is difficult for us as modern readers to, to discern as we read ancient texts because a lot of times we go to the text and we read it as if we would read, you know, the, the, the newspaper. But Paul intended this statement to be taken kind of with a twinkle in the eye. In verse 13, he quotes someone from Crete, and he says, everybody in Crete always tells lies. And then he says, this testimony is true. You know, it's like Ronald Reagan when he said, the most terrifying nine words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. You know, he's saying something sarcastic, but his remedy for this, for this situation is 100% serious. In verse 9, he says, hold firm so you can give instruction. In verse 11, he says, they must be silenced. They teach what they ought not to teach. In verse 13, it begins by saying, rebuke them sharply. Paul is saying the gospel is true. The word of God is trustworthy and it's to be taught. It's to be proclaimed. It's to be put into action, not just maintained as an intellectual exercise. John Stott talks about this passage and he highlights the fact how Paul's strategy to combat this false teaching is awesome. Paul's strategy here is not to put your head in the sand like an ostrich and just wait for things to pass by, but he says these false teachers, this this untruth needs to be combated with more teachers, with truth. That's the long-term strategy is to multiply the number of, of truth teachers who are equipped to rebuke, to refute error. And I wonder, are you convinced that that's possible? Are you convinced that the word of God isn't just some intellectual experience, but it's a powerful, trustworthy word of God that transforms lives? Now, I can assume right now, some of you are saying, you lost me. You know, it's comfortable when we reflect on something and say God's word is true, it's trustworthy, and then we can take that with us and we can reflect on it. But here Paul calls the people to action. He calls them to respond to the situation in which they are currently in. I love the fact that that Paul doesn't just brush over the top of it without giving clear instructions, without helping the people who are in these complicated situations. Because when I think about my current reality, 
I think that it's actually really hard when you're faced with people who, who believe something completely different and you're standing in the minority. So today where I live in Europe, it's a post-Christian culture. And so the majority of the people, if I stand up for truth, if I speak truth, their natural response is to make me the center of attention, but not because they respect me, but more because they want to laugh and think what I am saying is absolutely crazy. And I think that's a true reality for us in many situations where we find ourselves where the truth isn't being taught, where the truth isn't so clear to stand up and to speak, to share the hope of the gospel. But Paul says it so greatly. He says in verse 13, rebuke them sharply, and there's a purpose, so that they may be sound in faith. You see, Paul's motives, they're pure. They're not egocentric, they're, they're other-centric. It's not focused primarily on, on how you feel, but on a genuine love for others. You see, the goal of the correction of, of, of terrible, complex situations is not simply to protect the gospel, but correction seeks to restore others to spiritual health. Paul wants these people to engage with the people around them. Not to just put their head in the sand. Not to just ignore and wait for everything to go by. But in humility and hope and a conviction that the gospel transforms lives to speak truth into the situation. I've seen how this happens time and time again. I have a friend who I've been walking through life with for the past five years. And this guy, I mean, when I met him, he asked me the craziest questions. I mean, he, he asked, as a Christian, can you eat pork? I mean, that's, that's the reality from where he was coming from. Really no connection with someone who believes the Bible. And we've had so many conversations where I've said things to him, and I think to myself, man, he is never going to want to hang out with me again. He's never going to want to hear again what I have to say. And then a few days later, he calls. And I just told Mani, my wife, the other day, you know, I think that there's something in him that realizes an authentic love for him, a care for him, not for what I can get out of the relationship, not because I stand on the pedestal and I speak down to him, but rather because I share my life with him. I'm interested in him. I want him to find hope in the gospel of Jesus. Friends, where has God placed you? I'm not telling you to leave this service with guns ablazing, looking for anyone that you can take their mouth open and shove something in and say, you need to believe this. I'm asking you, where's God placed you? How do you engage with the world around you? Paul's telling Titus to rebuke the people, to speak to the people, but with a purpose, so that they may come to faith. See, the gospel is true, and that's why it works, and that's why it needs to be proclaimed. That's why it needs to be taught. Point number three, the gospel leads to life. It leads to lasting fulfillment. Paul goes on to write in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 
So when we read this at first glance, it seems confusing. I mean, he says to the pure, all things are pure. To the unbelieving, nothing's pure. I mean, it's like he's saying a word to describe that same word, you know, or like a, to a barber, everybody needs a haircut. To a carpenter, everything's a nail. But, but what is he saying here? And Paul's cutting to the heart. You see, he's not interested in just an outward image. He wants Titus to know what it is that sets apart a Christian, what it sets apart someone who holds firmly to the truth of the word from someone who doesn't believe the gospel, from someone who doesn't hold firm to the truth. When I read this, I think of Mark 7, 20 to 23, and it's where Jesus addresses a similar topic. Jesus told the the crowd he was addressing, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And then he lists a long list of things, coveting, wickedness, deceit, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And he goes on to say, all these things come from within and they defile a person. So what Paul and Jesus are saying is that someone who believes in the gospel is someone who's transformed from the inside out. Someone whose core identity has been changed, has been transformed. Maybe you think again, well, Scott, you lost me, you know. I know a lot of Christians and they're hypocrites. And I think when we're honest with ourselves, when we're honest about our dishonesty, we know the same thing's true about ourselves. I mean, imagine if I would tell you that tonight at 8 o'clock, we're going to watch a movie. And the movie is that we've been following you all week. And all of your thoughts, we, we were able to record them. All of your actions, we were able to record them. And at 8 o'clock, I'm bringing popcorn and we're all going to watch the movie on screen. I think every one of us, without exception, would say, please no. You know, we realize we're not pure. We realize that we don't meet up to this level. And so I don't know about you, but within me, there's like this discrepancy. Then, then what does it mean? How, how does this happen? How can it mean that Paul says all things are pure when, when we know that no one is? And I would say to that, well, actually, there is one who is pure. And that's Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came to earth and he did hold firm to the trustworthy word. He proclaimed the message of the kingdom and he lived a pure life that you and I could never live. And the Bible teaches that those who believe in him are born again, they're made new. Their sins are washed away. They're made pure on the basis not that what they can do, not what they've done, but what's been done for them. On the basis of what Jesus has done for them. And so Jesus makes us pure, not on the basis of our actions, not on our basis of the quality of faith that we have in him, but he makes us pure because he is pure. He saves us because of his purity. I read a wonderful example from one of my favorite authors, Timothy Keller, who who gave a wonderful example of what this means, of how, how this practically looks. Not based on the quality of our faith, not based on the quality of our purity, but on the object of our faith. So imagine that you're on a cliff and and you can't get up. And you know if you fall, you're going to die. And you look up and you see a branch and you think, if I can just grab that branch, it might be able to hold me. But you don't know. And before you fall, you reach up and you grab it. And the branch holds you. It sustains you. 
It gives you the life that you need. You see, the point is this. It's not the quality of our faith that saves us, but the object in which we place our faith that saves us. It's not our purity that saves us. It's the purity of Christ that saves us. That's why Christianity is so unique. That's why it results in absolute humility because it creates a foundation of our lives where we know at our worst moments we can say, man, I can have a short memory because I'm forgiven. Because I'm made pure, not by my purity, but by the purity of Christ. And at the same time, even at your best moments where you say, man, I did something awesome and I'm so happy and I'm so pumped, you can live with humility because you know it's not me, but it's Christ in me. You respond with humility knowing that the purity that Christ gives you in your heart, the birth, the new birth that he gives you is because of him and his purity and his greatness. And that's why I say the gospel leads to life. It leads to lasting fulfillment because it's a foundation, a real foundation from which we can build our lives on, derive our authority from, and live in joy. As I end the near, as I end this sermon, I want to come to a point of application. I have to be honest with you, this is always the most difficult point for me. Because I look out and I see faces, I see people, professionals, people with life experience, and it makes me uncomfortable because I realize anything I say now can put our relationship in jeopardy. But at the same time, I can't read this passage in good faith and think it's just okay to walk away and say, well, it's a great intellectual exercise, and I look forward to next Sunday to see what we get to continue to read. But I believe that God wants us to respond from the things that we hear, from the things that we discover in his word. So I want to ask you a few questions. And I want to invite you to examine your heart. And I don't really want to talk to the person next to you, the person in front of you, the person behind you, but you personally. What's the foundation of your life? Is the truth of the gospel the foundation of your life? Or is it something else? From what are you deriving your purpose, your direction? Second question, how do you respond to the world around you? Do you engage it? Do you proclaim, do you teach truth in your difficult life circumstances? Or do you just put your head in the sand and wait for things to pass? And the third, do you live in this purity of the gospel? Do you live in the purity of Christ? Do you live in his, forgi- for- do you live in his forgiveness which produces humility in you, knowing that in your best moments and in your worst moments, your value is not derived from those, but from Christ and Christ alone. Friends, the gospel is true, and it's the only message that can provide lasting fulfillment. This text goes on, and it shares how the others, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And I wonder, what do your actions say about what you believe? What do your actions say about what you truly believe? 
Because we often say, you know, the things that I think, they result in the things that I do. But we can also ask the reverse question, what do the things I do say about what I really believe? I'd like to pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you don't shy away from complex, complicated situations you give us hope and you give us clarity. I pray, Father, that we are people who hold, for, hold firm to your truth, that we share it, that we proclaim it, that we engage with life that you've placed us in. And I pray, Father, that your gospel would be the foundation of our life, that it would lead to lasting fulfillment that you would make this truth real, not just to our minds, but to our hearts. And that it would produce a freedom and a joy, a freedom and a joy that only you can give. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.